It's hard to say which would be more exhausting for Moses, going up and down the mountain twice carrying stone tablets or having to deal with the people of Israel down below every time. You may remember the story, bits and pieces of it, from Sunday school or VBS or maybe Charlton Heston on the big screen. Moses goes up, gets the commandments, and no sooner does he get down and the people have already strayed from God, so he shatters them on the ground and they break into little pieces. And thankfully, God is more patient with us than Moses. And God says, come back up, bring some new stone tablets, writes the Ten Commandments again, and Moses brings them down as we read. The commandments themselves, those ten, are a few chapters earlier in Deuteronomy, and you may remember them, the starting off with no other gods and making no idols and keeping the Sabbath, and then it kind of turns a corner of honoring mother and father, and it ends with not bearing false witness and not coveting. Only those last two, it's not quite that generic. Neighbor gets into the commandments. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't covet your neighbor's house or spouse. The commandments become love of God and love of neighbor, so that by the time of Jesus, if you're quizzed, there's really only one commandment, even though it has these two pieces. It's like two sides of the same coin. They can't even be separated. These two will be spoken of as the great commandment. But what's missing from the conversation, and Deuteronomy is very clear, is love of the stranger. And for really good reason. This is hard to fathom, but in the First Testament, love of neighbor occurs once love of stranger 36 times. And they are different terms. They're not synonyms. But the distinction is not geography. It's not that, well, the neighbor's close by and the stranger's out in that land. Not even close. For the Jews, neighbor could be close, could be far away, but it was, you know, our people, our kind, us. Whereas stranger could be far away in an exotic land or close by, but they're, they're not us. They speak a different language. They take up different customs. They're not us. Here's one of the ways I've been thinking about it. For years, without trying, I got TSA pre-check. It's like I won the lottery, right? And then all of a sudden, I quit getting it. I didn't do anything. I just quit getting it. So my son convinced me, go pay the money, Dad. It's worth it. So I went. I paid the money. I applied. Uh, they did the background check. I was fingerprinted. And in case you've wondered, I'm approved. I'm a good guy. It, it used to feel to me like you went through security, taking off all your clothes, that you were a bad person until you could prove otherwise. And now it's the opposite. I approach it and it's like, they just assume I don't have a bomb in my shoes. They assume my belt's not a weapon, that my liquids are harmless. It's a breeze. But if you fly out of the country, the rules change. I mean, you can still go through pre-chat. But you know, my wife and I flew to Cancun back in January, a little getaway. At passport control in every place in the world, it gets divided into two. Us and them, citizens and other. 
which, I don't know, maybe that makes perfect sense for national security. But what about for a worldview? Is it us and them or just one big us? Not surprisingly, the vision of God in both Testaments is one big us. You heard the reading earlier from Galatians. Paul says in Christ there's, there's no male and female, there's no Jew and Gentile, there's no slave and free. Well, sort of. I mean, it, you have to read this carefully. Because I'm pretty sure there's still man and woman. There's still Jew and Palestinian. Paul's vision is that there will be a unity of all one us, but made up of diversity. We'll still honor the diversity, but there'll still be this one us, this family. In the passage, the motivation, the reason given for Israel to love the stranger is their experience. You, you were slaves in Egypt, remember? You know how they treated you. Don't be like that. But I don't know how much that applies to us. I mean, we weren't slaves in Egypt. How do we relate to that? Most Americans would insist that everywhere we go, they translate everything into English for us. We're not used to being the stranger. We want to always be at home. So it seems to me that for us to think about loving the stranger is really grounded in two things. And the first one is that we are all, and I mean all, connected. Six degrees of separation. You know that phrase, right? You've heard it. Well, long before it was a, a party game with Kevin Bacon movies, there actually was a psychologist in the late 60s. His name was Stanley Milgram, and he had this, this idea for an experiment that would kind of cement how connected we are. So he had 160 envelopes with the name and address of an accountant, stockbroker, living in the Boston area. But he sent these packets to people in Omaha, Nebraska. And their instructions were very clear. You have to get this to the guy in Boston, but you can only send it to somebody you know who might know somebody who knows somebody. And in every single case, it took six moves or less. Most often, five or four. You got to let that sink in. Six degrees of connection. Sometimes when I'm in an airport just waiting to board and I watch the business people going by and the people going to visit their family, I just try to wrap my mind around that. I'm only three, four, five. They know somebody who knows. We know. How can we be that connected? But we are. I don't know if you remember this story. It's on page two in the Bible. Adam and Eve have those boys, Cain and Abel. They get into it. Cain kills his brother. Most scholars don't take that literally. They, they kind of see that as a parable for not just brotherly envy and hatred, but humans killing humans. You remember the scene? God comes to hold Cain accountable. It almost looks like a trial. He pleads, of course, not guilty. You know how some people in, in trials will say, well, I don't really remember doing that. Finally, he says, where's your brother? And, he, and then there's that famous line, am I my brother's keeper? 
Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that every story after that in the Bible is meant to say, yes, yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You're accountable for your sister and your cousin and the guy across the street and the crossing guard in front of the elementary school and the refugee. Every one of them, you're their keeper. The second reason I think that this love of stranger relates to us, I kind of need to come at it sideways. I need you to picture a Polish Jew hiding in a cellar and a Nazi soldier whose job it is to find him. I need you to picture a politician who is vehemently opposed to immigration on our southern border and a Nicaraguan teenager who is fleeing gang violence. I need you to picture a family of black slaves in antebellum Mississippi and a plantation owner whose economy is built on slavery. And a neo-Nazi going on a shooting rampage and Turkish expats in a hookah bar. And a woman born, she could swear, born in a man's body and a fundamentalist preacher who thinks transgender people are perverts. And here's the punchline. You could have been any one of them. You could have been born any one of those people with their worldview and their situation. That could have been you. You could have been the stranger. And in many parts of the world, you are the stranger. God calls us to love the stranger because we're all strangers upon the earth and all part of one big family. For many of you, the name Fred Craddock is the name of a stranger. You hear Carla talk about him, you hear me talk about him. Who is this guy? Well, he was, as some of you know, a preacher in our tradition. He taught in seminaries and he even preached here a couple of times. There's one story he tells when he was on sabbatical in the late 60s and he was in Europe and he was taking a train from Zurich, Switzerland to Stuttgart, Germany. His hope was in getting on the train that he could find a compartment that had enough people that they would have a conversation and he could just sit on the edge and practice his German by listening. He wouldn't have to talk. But every compartment was packed until he found one that had only one woman and he realized, I'm going to be 50% of the conversation. This isn't going to be good, but he didn't have a choice, so he sat down. They just smiled, you know, the way foreign people smile at each other. Eventually, he ventured a little German and said something like, so where are you going? And she said to Rostock, East Germany, which, of course, was communist at the time. So he asked her, are you communist? And she said, no, I'm a Christian. And he said, I am too. I'm, a, I'm American. And she'd already figured that part out. So they had a little conversation. She told him how when she went to get her papers that the official had been very rude and abrupt. He had assured her that she would return. She said, but what if I don't? He said, you have family here. She says, but what if I don't? And he said, you're old. No one cares. And Fred winced at that, and they talked. And then she had a, a, a music box that played Silent Night, and they sang it together in German. 
And Fred, the whole time, was starting to get hungry. He had brought a sandwich with him, but it just felt so rude to eat the sandwich in front of the woman. So he thought, I'll, I'll get the sandwich out and I'll break it in half. But it was one of those hard German sandwiches that you can't break. You know, he, he tried karate chopping it. It wouldn't come apart. And while he was just mangling it, he didn't know that she was peeling an orange and splitting it in half. And he gave her half a sandwich and she gave him half an orange. And when he got back to the States, he said, you know, I, I preached in hundreds of churches. And I've noticed in the bulletin that the menu is always the same. Half an orange, half a sandwich, all of us connected at the table. Fred told that story in a church in Missouri. And he was kind of curious, so he got out an atlas just to look. He wondered, how far is it? I mean, how many hundreds, thousands of miles is it from Germany to Missouri, from Missouri to Germany? Do you know how far it is? It's clear across this table. 